Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Last week we began a series. As I said last week, I have no real idea why. Uh, but last week we, we began a series looking at the Bible. And um, we basically kicked off last week. Last week turned out to be a little bit traumatic. <laughs> we, we felt like we asked lots more questions than we even vaguely attempted to answer. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure this morning is going to be very much different. Last week we began by asking effectively the question, why the Bible? Uh, and the short answer, if you haven't got around to listening to the podcast, the short answer is, uh, why the Bible? The Bible, because we love Jesus. We love and follow Jesus. And if you know anything about Jesus, Jesus was pretty devoted to the Bible of his time. And so this morning, we're going to have a go at what the Bible is. Uh, but before we do that, let's kick off with uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, let's see if we can find it. John chapter 5, starting at verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony... But I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light, John, John the Baptist. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me but if someone else comes in his own name then you will accept him how can you believe since you accept glory from one another but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only god but do not think i will accuse you before the father your accuser is moses on whom your hopes are set if you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote about me but since you do not believe what he wrote how are you going to believe what I say? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures. We thank you for the word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and be particularly manifest this morning, that you would um, illuminate the scriptures to us and that your, uh, the name of Jesus would be lifted in this place. Amen. Whenever I read the scriptures, I, I find... I've got all kinds of questions sort of, sort of rummaging around my brain. And it's sort of questions like I'm sat there and I'm reading the Bible and I'm like, um, part of me is concentrating on what I'm reading and part of me is saying to myself, why, why am I even reading this? Um, and when I say, why am I reading this? Why am I reading like 
why the Bible, why, why read this book, why study it, why spend hours of my week, um, you know, a period of time of my week uh, reading the thing. Uh, then I have like questions like, um, what is the Bible? I mean, what exactly is it really? You know, it's a bit odd in places, to say the least. And, and then I then find myself on a rabbit warren of, um, well, what's it actually for? Where does it even come from? Um, you can tell I'm really studying hard by this point as I'm now addressing the third question, which is rumor has it that we don't actually have the original manuscripts and what we've got are thousands of copies of the originals. And is that even true or is that not true? Is what we have reliable or not? And then I ask myself the question, like, how am I even supposed to read this thing? I mean, I know how to read, we know how to read, but like, how do I read the Bible um, in a way so that I'm actually meeting with God and that I'm, and that I'm approaching this book with all reverence and in the right attitude and the right heart. So as I'm reading the Bible, I'm also kind of thinking about all those other uh, questions in my head and also looking out the window and wondering what's for tea, whatever. We don't have all of the answers um, here by any means, but over the next few weeks, at least, we're going to have a go at maybe trying to tackle or think through some of those questions. And um, last week, as I said, we began by asking the question, why the Bible? And as I already said, the short answer is because we love Jesus and we want to follow Jesus in everything. And Jesus was committed and devoted to the Bible of his day. And so we need to work out what Jesus' relationship with the scriptures was so that we can have that same relationship. And this morning, we're going to attempt to look at what is the Bible? And um, there are a number of ways of answering what on the surface of things is actually a pretty straightforward question. You know, is the Bible, um, is it a sort of encyclopedia? You know, is it like, a bit like um, Encyclopedia Britannica? You, you, you kind of, you pick it up and, and you're basically thinking it is an, a bit of an A to Z and you're, you're, you're looking up something you want to find the answer to. So you're kind of looking for, you know, G in here, you know, G, G-O, G-O-D, God. Aha, God interesting you know or you think oh, um what else do i need to know about uh, marriage you know marriage there must be a lot written about marriage there must be some answers to marriage in here uh, m-a-m-a-r m-a-r-r-i-a-g marriage oh, illumination all the answers you know and we do the same thing with you know sex and money and power and all kinds of stuff and we kind of approach it a little bit like an encyclopedia you know is that is that what it is or is it not that at all you know is it some kind of um mysterious allegory uh, and it's all, um, it's all deeply symbolic, and it's all about you and Jesus, you know, skipping over the mountaintops and through the valleys of life, hinds feet on high places. And, and the right way to read it is to look for the, the deep hidden symbolism, the deep spiritual truths that are buried, sort of Da Vinci Code-like within its, within its pages. And so... You know, we read the Good Samaritan, and when we read the Good Samaritan, it's not just the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's, you know, man, the man in the story is, is actually Adam, and, and uh, Jerusalem isn't just Jerusalem, it's actually the celestial city, and the, the thieves, well, that's the devil and all of his cohorts, and, and then the priest and the Levite, that's, the, that's actually the Old Testament, wasn't a priest or a Levite at all. The Samaritan is obviously Jesus, you know, the inn is the church. The refuge, um, the fact that the Samaritans coming back is Jesus' return. Is, is, is that how, I mean, lots of people read 
uh, certainly the Good Samaritan and lots of other parts of the Bible like that. Um, is the Bible actually no different to the Odyssey or the Iliad? Is it just an ancient book written by humans and therefore it's probably full of errors? But, you know, it's nevertheless interesting sometimes if we want to know what ancient Hebrew men thought about God. Um, or is the Bible something else entirely? And the reason I think this matters, and, and again, I think why we need to be tackling this as a church, is because if we misunderstand what the Bible is, the chances are that we're going to turn it into something that it isn't. Does that make sense? So uh, what exactly is this wonderful uh, thing, this, uh, this Bible? Well, first of all, it's, it's, um, it's actually not a book at all. It, it, it's a, a library of books. Uh, the Bible is a library. And the fact that we call it the Bible is all a bit misleading. Um, it comes from the Latin Biblia, which means book or books. Uh, but the Bible itself n never calls itself uh, a book. In, in fact, the Bible never calls itself the Bible, which is interesting that Bible is actually an unbiblical name. Um, but it's easy to forget that the Bible isn't a book, especially when it's kind of put together in what looks like a book, it kind of um, gives us that impression. But we've got to remember that it wasn't put, get, put together like this until, you know, hundreds of years after Jesus with the invention of the Codex, with the invention of the first kind of collation of books, if you like. It wasn't until a thousand or so years later that Gutenberg did his thing with his printing press that made it possible for us to be able to carry it around in this kind of format so we can bring it to church with us every single week without uh, fail. Uh, prior to that, it would have all been on scrolls uh, made out of papyrus coming from around the Nile in Egypt. There were 24 scrolls just for the Old Testament. That would have been much heavier to lug with you to church on a Sunday morning. That doesn't include the, 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 the letters and the rest of the New Testament. This is, um, this is a library right here. And it's really important that we get our heads around this idea of seeing the Bible as a library because it has a huge effect on how we approach the thing and how we read the thing. You know, you think about it, you walk into a library with a very, very different mindset and a very, very different frame of mind to the way that you approach a book. A book usually has um, one genre. It's usually either, um, you know, it's a novel or a memoir or it's a cookbook or it's a textbook or it's poetry. But a library has all of it and more. The thing is that we read different kinds of literature, different kinds of writing styles in very, very different ways. Very few people um, sit down on a Sunday afternoon with a nice cup of tea and a piece of cake and read through a, um, a cookbook, a recipe book, you know. Like, I mean, from beginning to end. Like, you start at the beginning and you read every single word and all the ingredients. You know, you might do. Some of you think, you, some of you do that. Some of you do that, don't you? <laughs> okay, not a good example. That's weird, right? Okay. Um, you know, people tend not to, like, carry a journal with them or a highlighter pen or post-it notes or underline things. When they're reading, again, it's a terrible example, because I know some of you do this too, uh, when they're reading Harry Potter, um, it's not how you're supposed to read it. So if you're underlining things or writing things in your journal that you've read from Harry Potter, 
Like, that's odd, okay? Um, it really is. I mean, carry on, but it's odd. And in the same way, this collection of books, it's extremely diverse. There's, there's all these different kinds of writing, different styles, different genres, and they all need a different approach. Um, here are some of the things that I'm reading at the moment. Are they there? Yeah. This is my, uh, this is my reading list at the moment. Um, yes. Uh, so I'm reading uh, Dealing with Difficult People. You've driven me to that, right? Uh, it's, a series, uh, it's a series on emotional intelligence. It's published by the Harvard Business Review, and it's like a collection of essays and articles um, with all of your names as each, like a chapter heading, uh, and how I, we particularly approach any given one on a given day. And, it, and it's tackling a given subject. And I kind of, I might just read one, or I might read two, or I might make notes, or I might underline something, uh, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, I, I might not. Uh, then there's uh, Father, Father Sergius. Uh, that's by Tolstoy. Uh, that's short, which is really nice. And it's lovely. But being Russian, it's pretty dense. I mean, it's not in Russian. I'm not reading it in <laughs> Russian. Um, I'm not that capable. But um, I've read it a couple of times over the last couple of weeks and I'm on the third sitting just because I just want to sort of squeeze out every last bit of uh, goodness from it and then there's The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright which is one of the books I'm reading to um, help me with this series it's great uh, there's not a whole bunch of laughs and then what else is there there's um, Jesus and Addiction yeah that's thrilling uh, Severe Mercy that's also quite depressing um, and then Susan Howitz's Glittering Images that's really depressing I think I need more uh, I need something more entertaining. <laughs> this week, thank you all of you who refrained from sending me emails last week. What was fantastic about saying is I'm going to be inundated with emails meant that I didn't get any. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, feel free to inundate me with your entertaining book requests, the book selections for my, um, my night stand, I think it's called. Anyway, my uh, point is that different books need different approaches and um, in my opinion or each one of these books on my list conveys truth some convey certain truths about god some convey certain truths about the bible some about human nature some about science and research there's history and poetry probably in all of them there's genius in some there's adequacy in others but each one of them they all do um, what they do in a very different way uh, to the others. And because of that, I read each one differently. I approach each one differently. And this is how we need to approach the scriptures. This is how we need to come to the Bible. Because all sorts of problems come about when we forget that the Bible is a library or a collection of books written by dozens of different authors, written in all sorts of different genres, written in three very, very different languages. It's full of history, it's full of bibliography, it's full of poetry, it's prophecy, there's the riveting read of census data in there and genealogical records, it's all in there. Um, there's just so much within its pages, but because of that, we need to learn to read the Bible um, not so much literally, uh, but more literarily, if that makes sense. And what that means is that we need to read the Bible according to the genre of the book that we're reading, according to what the writer is actually trying to get across. And that's why we don't read the Bible literally. And, and just an aside, people who say that they read the Bible literally, they, they, don't, they don't really mean that. You know, because the Bible is so full of metaphor and word pictures and 
ancient sort of Hebrew ideas that make literal reading of the scriptures almost impossible. Most of the time when you read the Bible, it's crystal clear, you know, what you're reading and what it is that you're supposed to do with it. Um, you know, when you re read Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah 55 says, you know, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains will uh, break forth into song before you and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands, blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, I hope, that's not literal. You know, you know that the mountains aren't going to sort of, the hills are alive with the sound of me. You know, they're just not going to do that. The, the, the trees of the field aren't going to do some Lord of the Rings Ent-like thing and start, like, it's, it's just not what it means. Um, it's Hebrew poetry. And it's this incredibly beautiful way of saying that when Jesus is king and Lord over all, it's going to be felt on this ecological level. Even creation itself is going to celebrate the freedom that comes with King Jesus. And then there's a whole other number of passages in the scripture, and it's like, well, it's not so crystal clear if it's literal or a metaphor. Think about Paul's famous line about Jesus coming back on the clouds. Like, is that literal or metaphorical? Now, some people think it's literal. Maybe it is, right? It's just not entirely clear. And the nature of the writing style of the particular book of the Bible makes a whole lot of difference as to whether we're going to interpret that and how we're going to interpret that. There's all sorts of example, uh, all sorts of controversy around um, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, from chapter 12 onwards, from Abraham in the story onwards, it, Genesis basically reads like, History. So it's the same sort of writing style as uh, 1 and 2 Kings and, and 1 and 2 Samuel and stuff like that. And so you kind of know that that's history that you're reading. And Genesis 1 to 11 is like something else altogether. It's something ancient. It, it dates millennia before Christ. It, no one's really sure how to read it, what genre of, of, of sort of writing style it even is. You know, there's no real consensus about it. And so when we're approaching Genesis 1 to 11, they're quite, it's got some important chapters of the Bible in there, right? And so when we're approaching Genesis chapters 1 to 11, the, the first question that we should be asking ourselves um, isn't, well, you know, hold on, is, is the Bible right or is science right? Which one is right? Which one is true? You know, was the earth created 10,000 years ago in, in, in six 24-hour days? Actually, or is that like a, a, a metaphor? Is that a word picture? Or is that something else entirely? Uh, our first question shouldn't even be about whether um, the flood was, you know, was the flood local? Was the flood global? Or, or what about Adam and Eve? You know, was there just one man and one woman? And how does that work? And, and did, did Adam have a belly button? You know, these are like the most pressing issues that we actually have around the interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis. And... The first question we should be asking isn't even, is this true or not? I don't think. The first question really should be, what, what kind of writing is this? What type of writing? Am I reading history? Is this the same as 1 and 2 Kings? You know, and if that's true, if it is history, then does ancient history narrative, does it play by the same rules as, as, as modern or recent history narrative? Do they have the same interpretational styles? Is it, the same, is it the same game? Should I expect the same 
style, the same, the same um, as I do now, you know, the same type of response from the historian back then, um, you know, a few millennia before Jesus, as I do from a journalist writing today in the Daily Telegraph. Is it the same sort of thing? Uh, is this not history at all? Is it something else? Is it something much more mysterious? Is it some kind of pre-modern, pre-scientific story about the origin of things? Or is it allegory? Or is it parable? Or is it poetry? What is it? My point is, the first question that we need to familiarize ourselves with is, what kind of writing is this? And then we go from there. So the Bible is a library of very different styles and genres. Secondly, it's both divine and human. We touched on this last week, so I'm not going to get into this too much. But the scriptures are divine uh, in that God is behind each word and phrase. John chapter 10, uh, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be set aside. Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, Paul puts it another way in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching Uh, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, That phrase, we've looked at this before, God breathed, is usually translated as inspired, but it can equally be translated as expired. And so the scriptures are breathed out by God. They are inspired. N.T. Wright, on this whole thing around inspiration, writes this. He says, inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. So more literally, inspired means God breathed. So when we are reading this collection of books, we're in this library, we are reading the words of God. But that said, it is both divine and human because we are also reading the words of Moses and David and Isaiah and Luke and you know when I say that don't imagine Moses sitting there going into some kind of trance-like state like channeling God in some weird way with his eyes rolled back and his hand kind of like automatically writing the thou shalts and shalt nots you know it's some kind of robotic sort of dictation it's not like that at all that's not how God works God works through free, creative, intelligent, relational human beings. God is all about collaboration. So God breathed out. Yes, he inspired the Bible, but he did it through human beings. And in doing so, he didn't erase, he didn't eradicate the, the writer's personality or their intellect or their vocabulary or their style or their life stage or their, even their worldview. Paul has got this incredible mind, but he's really annoying, I find. Um, Ezekiel, he's got this kind of crazy, like, imagination. Um, Mark is curt and to the point and seems to be in a hurry, but he's a great storyteller. Luke is this pedantic, meticulous, exceptional historian, you know, down to the, the very last detail of everything when god inspired the writers of the bible he gave room for all of their fairly large personalities and that's amazing and what happens is the human aspects of the bible tend to end up on the more liberal end of the spectrum and they begin to be thought of as 
a problem and, and therefore proof that the Bible's not trust, trustworthy, that it's not divine, it's not actually from God. But the Bible writers are very open about the humanness of the Bible. Um, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it, there's Paul. Paul to the church of God in Corinth. It's Paul, not God, not God to the church in Corinth. It's Paul to the church in Corinth. In, 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 in the same chapter, in, in verse 16, he says, I don't even remember how many people I baptized. It's like, what? Like, I, I can't remember. I can't remember how many people I baptized. And you're like, well, hold on. This is breathed out by God. This is the word of God. And it's like, it doesn't sound like he even remembers being there. Oh, what are you supposed to do with that? And then he says in, in chapter 7, he says, I give this command. And then he's got in brackets, he says, not I, but the Lord. He's talking about marriage. He says, it's like, you know, okay, pay attention. Not I, but the Lord. All right. And then in a couple of verses down, he says, to the rest, I say this. And in brackets, I, not the Lord. It's like, what? Which, uh, which, which, be more clear. What about the rest of your stuff? Could you put brackets around everything else you've written? Paul, that would have been really, really helpful. You know, and then in verse, uh, chapter, one, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, is when, what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. Right? It's like, okay, like pay attention. And you see you've got this tension. And, and is Paul trying to hide it? I don't think so. But there is this tension. And we have to work out how we hold the human and the divine intention. Thirdly, uh, the Bible tells one unified story. The Library of Books is both divine and human. It tells, a, divi- uh, tells a, a unified story. The Bible is a story. Uh, Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods, he writes this. The reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. A whole range of writing styles in the Bible. Um, I discovered, I haven't actually analyzed this for myself, uh, but the narrative is around 44%. 44% of scriptures is narrative style. 33% is poetry. 23% is sort of discourse prose. It's kind of teaching type stuff. And they're just some interesting ratios. The largest chunk of the pie is narrative. Uh, Most of the Bible doesn't sound like thou shalt or thou shalt not. Most of it sounds like there was this chap called Moses. Once upon a time, there was a bloke in the desert and his name was even the other stuff, like the poetry and the discourse, is, is all embedded, it's all interwoven into this much larger meta-narrative, this overarching story that all of the writers are telling together. And the beauty of a story is that everyone loves a good story. Um, a good thing about story is story evokes the imagination. It, it opens up our hearts, it opens up our minds to a whole new way of seeing the world and it unlocks a world where virgins give birth and messiahs gets killed and come back to life where the the last the first and the first shall be last and the most courageous act is uh, act is laying down our lives and on and on and on it's the story of the upside down nature of the kingdom of god it's not just list of commands of, of what to do and what not to do that's all in there but at its core it's a story that evokes 
the imagination and it, it, it inspires us to a, a new way to live and to be human in God's world. So it's a library, both uh, divine and human. It tells this uh, one unified story. And lastly, and quickly, it all leads to Jesus. It all leads to Jesus. Everything in here points to and leads to Jesus. There's something all the way through the scriptures that leads onwards and upwards to the person of Jesus. Just go back to John uh, chapter 5, verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you know, the religious conservatives of the day, who, despite their knowledge of the scriptures, still managed to miss out on Jesus. And so maybe there's a, a bit of a warning in there for us. Yes, the li- this library is uh, incredible. It's sacred. It's holy. It's breathed out by God, absolutely. But unless we find Jesus in and on its pages... With have missed the point. Then it just becomes purely academic. So what is the Bible? It's a library of books. It's both divine and human. It tells one unified story, all of which points to Jesus. And just to end, I, I've become a fan of a thing called the Bible Project. I encourage you to have a look at their website. These guys uh, produce a whole lot of uh, free Bible resources in video format, which I think is really, really helpful to kind of work through. And I thought you might like to see one as a, an example. And it sort, of, it sort of relates to some of the things that we've been saying today, hopefully. And in particular, um, the second part of it is about this invitation on the way that we are to approach reading um, the scriptures. So if this is going to work, so the Bible is a collection of books. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature. Yeah, we all know a narrative when we see one, like The Hunger Games or The Great Gatsby. And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays. Now all of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world. But there's also medieval English literature from another place in time, or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of the details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it? Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are intentional. Intentional? 
Won't that lead to bad interpretations, people filling in the gaps with their own answers? Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible, but they apparently thought the risk was worth it. These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then, in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives. Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether, it makes sense. And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others. This is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah, okay. Meditation literature. Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself. And then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So this ancient Jewish writing style, it must create unique types of narrative and poetry and discourse. Yes, and we'll explore all of those literary styles starting next with biblical narrative. Dun, dun, dun. So there's this thing whereby we can be studying the Bible every single day and still miss out on Jesus. But it doesn't mean to say that the Bible is a bad thing. You know, this is fantastic. This is a fantastic thing that we should never take for granted. Um, it's essential for us to know to being, um, so that we can be in relationship with Jesus. But this book isn't Jesus. This library of books is not Jesus. It's, it's a map that points to Jesus. Every day, what I loved about that video is just that whole, what he said about every day for the rest of your life, you slowly and quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself. Mutter the scriptures. Mumble the scriptures. Meditate on the scriptures. And then you go and talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles and making connections and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, the Bible starts to read you. And so that's what we're wanting to do through this series, is ponder the puzzles of this collection of books and do that together 
as we commit individually and corporately just to mumbling and muttering and reading and meditating on the scriptures every single day and seeing what the Spirit of God wants to do in and through us. Why don't you stand? And we will have the band back and we will minister to one another.